0: Hey true crime friends, I'm Danny and I'm Brenna and, and this, this is LAGO, Lago Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener's discretion is advised. My gosh, Brenna, we're finally here! Our first episode. How excited are you? I am so excited. I am ready. And even though it seems like we've been working on this for a while, it's only been since February.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: (laughs) every day it's been like, oh my gosh, we've done nothing to wow. (laughs) Here we are (laughs) with our first episode. Yeah. Happened quick, but yeah, I think it'll be a fun journey and. I'm excited. Yeah, so we have a little shout outs for those people that help us get started. i uh, like to shout out my little
1: sister, Aaliyah, for helping me with the logo and getting our design and looks. And then one of my childhood friends, Caitlin, she helped us out with our photo shoots that you see on our website and some personal merch stuff that she's done for us. So that was super fun.
0: And thanks to my dad, Mr. Daddy-O, for helping me with the (laughs) IT side and also my older brother who helped me with all of the general podcast items. Yeah, it takes a village and we definitely have a great one. Amen.
1: Okay, Brenna, this case embodies all the touch points of why I'm obsessed with true crime. You know, I love a good prison documentary and I'm all about the sentencing, and well, true crime in general, but this one has a lot of those touch points, and it makes me wonder why this case didn't get more publicity than it did, because the more I looked into it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And I did find a little bit, but not a ton that I was expecting, so it does make me wonder why it didn't receive more publicity than it did. But I will tell today's story a little different layout than I normally would, just to help you get the full understanding of this case. I do want to mention that this case took place in our home state of Texas, so I just thought it was very fitting for our very first episode. Don't mess with Texas, y'all. Amen. So I'm going to start this episode with the victim's background and the case first. Today's episode will cover the attack on Reverend Jesse Bournes. Bournes was working late at his shop he owned in Dallas, Texas on the night of April 5th 1999, as occasionally he would host workshops and seminars for the local community. At 5.30 that evening, his wife, Maggie Bournes, I will refer to her as Maggie throughout the rest of the episode, received a phone call from him reminding her that he would be home late that night since the seminar didn't start till about 8 p.m. He normally would come home, grab a change of clothes, a bite to eat, and kiss his wife, but that day he had brought his change of clothes with him to work so he didn't plan on coming home. Maggie then called the store at 8 p.m. to say goodnight, but no one picked up, so she just proceeded on her bedtime routine. At 3 a.m., something woke Maggie up, and she had realized that her husband had still not returned home. She called a friend to come pick her up and drive her to the store to check on him. The front door was found unlocked, and the lights were on, and there was no sign of a forced entry.
0: Question, so it's a store, and the store was unlocked. Do you know what time they closed or did... I mean, she came on at 3 a.m., but do we know if he had closed up the store that night? or?
1: Yeah, so his normal business hours would end around that 5.30 mark where he called to check in with her and let him know that he was setting up for the seminar, but the seminar didn't begin till 8. I would assume how most of those times, those things would be like an hour or an hour and a half or something like that. Mm -hmm. I I did not find anything verifying like how long the seminar was, but by 3 a.m., he definitely should have been home. Yeah. Yeah, my, I mean, realizing that your husband isn't home is one of my biggest fears. Yes, me too. Ugh, it puts me in a panic and I'll be like, why didn't you text me back? And he's like, <laughs> I'm sorry I was driving. And I was like, uh-uh, you let me know before you leave or when you get home or wherever you're going. My mind
0: just goes to, unfortunately, the worst case scenario. Oh, yeah, I
1: think most wives do, but, oh, my gosh, especially us crime fans. It's mm-hmm. it's a whole nother level. But in the early hours of April 6th, Maggie found the Reverend Jesse Borns Jr. stabbed to death in the hallway of his business. Bourns had been stabbed nearly 50 times. As police examined the scene, they found a ball-peen hammer left near his body and his wallet with $250 in cash left in it, but all his credit cards had been taken. Although the police did not announce this to the public, they told the family they believed he had been caught in a hit-quick robbery. Which when I looked into this, it's just someone looking for some quick cash. Maggie was then quoted in an article stating, quote, the police seem to think it was some dope addict, end quote.
0: Wait. Okay. (laughs) Lots of questions. First of all, fifty times that is crazy. That seems like it's personal and not just a robbery. Yeah. But then also They mentioned robbery, and he still had $250 in cash, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I didn't understand that either. I don't know why someone would proceed to take someone's credit card where those could be tracked and traced, and not the cash that was right in front of them. Yeah, because
0: that can't be traced. Yeah. That's a little weird.
1: Yeah, I didn't understand that at all, especially for their conclusion to be a quick-hit robbery, which is someone looking for quick cash, but they left... $250 $250 in cash behind. I didn't and understand that. And
0: if the police told Maggie that it was some dope addict, do drug dealers take cards now? Yeah, I guess they have squares now. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> this is also in 1999, oh, so they definitely took credit yeah. cards back then, too.
0: Definitely. Okay. Not adding up. Yeah,
1: it didn't make sense to me, either. Now, I want to switch gears and give you more details about Reverend Jesse Bournes Jr. before I get started into the investigation. Borns was described by all as outgoing, trusting, and a God-fearing man. He also never met a stranger. He sounds a lot like my dad. (laughs) He does, yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm always at the grocery store. It's like, Dad, can you please stop talking to everyone? We're trying to get home. I'm hungry. (laughs) We love your dad, though. (laughs) Yeah, he's great. Anyway, he truly believed that he was doing God's work. He had been a minister since 1952 when he started Greater St. James Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. I do want to note for our non Texas listeners that Dallas and Fort Worth are definitely different, and you better not ask anyone who lives in either place because they will fight you about it. Definitely. Yeah. That is where he would preach until he was arrested for fatally shooting Mrs. Joyce Johnson Chester in August of 1982. During his trial, Borns testified that he kept a gun at the church after multiple instances of theft and vandalism and that the gun had accidentally fired. He was found guilty and sentenced to 40 years. Borns was released from prison in September of 1997 after serving 15 of its 40-year sentence in jail.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so Reverend Jesse Borns accidentally shot i mean he was sentenced to some jail time do we know if he was sentenced to manslaughter murder so what i found
1: it kept stating that he was in prison for fatally shooting and never specified like murder or manslaughter from what i was able to find in it but from what information i was given i'm leaning more towards manslaughter than murder just because of the background of the information that we received it that's what I was leaning towards but I wasn't able to find anything to corroborate that
0: gotcha and I guess if he was only sentenced to 40 years it's not you know life like in in most murder trials and then he only did 15 years in jail and I'm not super suspicious about him having a gun because that is super common but it's just like well I didn't expect that in his background.
1: Yeah, it was, it was definitely a shocking little tidbit. And I mean, especially like us in Texas, everybody has a gun. Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't shocked about that at all. Um, but it was really shocking to see like this piece of information. That's why I was like, I had to make sure the whole background of his life story was in there as we kind of roll through this case. hmm After prison, the Reverend and his wife moved back to Dallas and opened up his business and found a new congregation with one of his lifelong friends. So when he opened this business, this is where he started to do the workshops and the seminars to kind of give back to the community. A lot of the seminars that I was able to find information on were more of like, money management and how to handle yourself after a situation like he was in jail and in prison for a while Mm -hmm. how to kind of rebuild your life back up and it was definitely more to engage the community and give back um, after he served his time. Now that we're all caught up with Bourne's history let's get back into the investigation. Since his release Bourne's and his family had received death threats However, the police were quick to announce that his murder did not have anything to do or connect him to his previous conviction. And when I say quickly to announce, like he was murdered on a Wednesday, and that Wednesday they were quoted saying that it had no connection.
0: Okay, but to go back to about the robbery, it makes more of a connection that somebody was mad at him for you know, taking somebody's life, whether it was accident or not, it makes more sense that way than a robbery. Oh yeah, I I would definitely agree with you.
1: As I learned more about this case, I was getting more and more frustrated because it's like you're saying one thing, like it's a quick hit robbery, but they left $250 in cash or has no connection, but he's been receiving death threats while he was in prison and as he was released. Yeah. So to me, I'm not sure what information they got. I know the police obviously don't release every bit of information that they know to the public, but it was very weird to me that how that came about.
0: Yeah, I'm suspicious.
1: (laughs) The police were unable to identify any witnesses to the crime, but they were able to identify witnesses who saw two men in front of the store arguing with Barnes in the hours leading up to his murder. The men were described as one being tall with deep wrinkles on his face and the other small with a scar on his neck. The missing credit cards from Bourne's wallet were located at a local store on April 7th. That's the day after the murder. Along with video footage of two men that used the credit cards. Those two men on tape were also confirmed by the eyewitnesses as the same men who were arguing with Bourne just hours before his death. The two men were identified One was even served a search warrant for their home, but ultimately both men identified were ruled out. Now, I wish I could tell you this case got less frustrating, but I can't, so prepare yourself.
0: Quick question there Do we know why they were ruled out? I mean, they also seem a bit suspicious, especially because. They were using their credit card. They proved that. Did they get charged with that at least?
1: No, um, at least not from what I found. They were not charged with anything. I mean, I don't know how you go from being identified by an eyewitness before the murder, being identified, again, on the footage as being using that same the person credit cards. and using the stolen credit cards. Like, I don't know how those connections all of that can line up and then say, oh, never mind, it wasn't you. I guess maybe like
0: an alibi or something. Yeah, I,
1: I mean, that's the only thing I could think of. But I mean, still, at the end of the day, they st- were using the stolen credit cards. So yeah, they had
0: some involvement, whether it was they knew somebody that had actually stolen the credit cards or they themselves did. so
1: Yeah, I mean, they just didn't magically appear in their pockets. Exactly. So there, <laughs> there has to be a story there Yeah, for sure. In late June, a few months after the murder, the focus shifted to 39-year-old Stanley Mosey and 36-year-old Dennis Allen. They were both two homeless men from the area who at the time struggled with drug addiction. Both men would perform odd jobs around the neighborhood for income. It was later stated by lead investigator Detective Richard that the focus shifted to both Allen and Mosey after several tips from others who frequented the same streets as the men. They were both brought into questioning, Dennis Allen would deny all involvement with the crime and would ultimately be released. Unfortunately, Allen's questioning would be conducted drastically different than Stanley Mosey's. Mosey would be questioned a total of three times and eventually confessing to the crime with the assistance of Allen and Allen's girlfriend, Felicia Shaw. During these questionings, Mosey had stated that he had been diagnosed with mental disorders such as schizophrenia and depression.
0: So, Did they just bring them in? I know they said that they were, they had tips on the men, but it seems like this fits the profile that the police were giving the, you know, that they battled with drug addiction, they were homeless, so they were doing odd jobs, they may may not have had money, so this sounds more like the police's idea rather than actual suspect to me
1: yeah i would definitely agree with you on that detective richard berry you'll come to see that later a lot of the stuff that he put together kind of unfolds and you really are not going to be able to tell what is truth and what is lies like he did say people identified the two men and said that they had some involvement from it but it's a game of he said she said you know so hmm. i'm i'm not Was really there sure
0: eyewitnesses in These two guys as well, or it was just like, oh, I think they may have something to do with it. Uh,
1: So it sounded more like not eyewitnesses, but hey, more tips from other people that frequented the streets. Gotcha. Yeah. So I wanted to remind everyone of this description of the two identified men that were back at the scene, with one of them being tall with deep wrinkles on his face and the other smaller with a scar across his neck. So, Brandon, can you take a look at the picture that I sent you and describe them both, please?
0: Yes. Alright, I'm looking at the pictures now. It looks like mugshots of two men. Um, I wouldn't describe them as wrinkly, and I don't see any amount of scars on either of their necks. I can't really tell how tall they are here, but yeah, I, I wouldn't think of them as matching the eyewitness description.
1: Yeah, and I also want to point out that I know you couldn't see how tall they were, but both men are over six feet tall. Oh, wow. So even with all this, both men were arrested and tried separately for capital murder. Shaw, Alan's girlfriend, was never arrested or called as a witness during these trials. During the trial for Mosey, a jail informant claimed Mosey lied about his mental illness to dissolve his confession. The informant also denied about being offered or had received any favorable treatment for his testimony. Barry, the lead detective, also testified that Mosey was calm, lucid, and sober when he confessed. He also denied threatening Mosey, although he did say he informed that the case could potentially carry out the death penalty. Stanley Mosey took the stand and testified denying that he, Shaw, and Allen were involved. He also stated that he had taken high levels of both drugs and alcohol and had not slept and ran out of his psychiatric medication prior to the final interrogation. He also stated that Barry told him, quote, somebody's going to get the needle and it's going to be you if you don't come up with something, end quote, prior to his confession. After this statement, the details of his confession were fed to Mosey by Barry.
0: I just want to say that I believe it's becoming more and more well known that you can confess to a crime that you didn't commit. Mm -hmm. And we can see, especially if, you know, he was not in the right headspace. And also the lead detective told him he was going to get the needle. So that's a little confusing.
1: Yeah. I mean, when police are interrogating you, they can do a lot of things to kind of Get you to testify, whether yeah. that's or tell them anything for that matter, whether that's lying to you, saying someone else has ratted you out, things like that. And I mean, especially with this guy's mental state, I could just see that like piling on top of him to finally where he's like, okay, I did it.
0: Okay, and another question. So, since that jailhouse informant took the stand talking about the confession, the confession, even though he recanted, was still allowed in court? So, yes, Mosey did
1: recant his confession on the stand saying that he didn't have any involvement in it and the reason he did say he did those things was because he was on drugs and had high level of alcohol in his system hadn't slept all of that but you will see later the confession for the jailhouse informant probably wasn't there from the beginning
0: gotcha okay
1: yeah For Allen's trial, Barry stated that three local store clerks identified Allen as the individual who attempted to use the stolen credit cards. One of the store clerks, who Detective Barry said that had identified Allen as one of the two men, took the witness stand. He saw Allen in court, and he recanted his identification of Allen being the taller of the two men. He was certain that Allen was not the man, and that he was shorter and much darker skinned than the man that he had seen. There was another jailhouse informant for Allen's case. He stated that Allen confessed to him that he had committed the crime with a, quote, dope fiend and his girl, end quote, and that the dope fiend, quote, messed up and stabbed the dude, end quote. He claimed that Allen told him that he threw the weapon he used to stab Bourne's, a, quote, letter opener or a tool, end quote, on top of Bourne's store or the store next door. The police searched the roof and found a steak knife on the roof of Bourne's store, but there's no evidence linking that to the crime.
0: Okay, I just want to say this jailhouse informant for Ellen's case said that Ellen confessed that it was a dope fiend and his girl, but didn't the eyewitnesses say that they saw two men, right? The one tall, one short, wrinkly scar on the face. So why I'm just confused at this girl thing. Where is this coming from? It's funny that you bring that up because this girl
1: that he mentions as well is also the person that was never charged or ever brought to the witness stand that he's mentioning. Yeah. So it's funny that you kind of connected those dots because like I was saying, as you start to learn more and more, it's just like, how is this happening?
0: Yeah, it's making little to zero sense. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Both men were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. I want to read a quote from Allen's defense lawyer, James Oatman, from his closing argument. Quote, In 18 years of practicing law, I've never said someone's being railroaded. But I will tell you today, an innocent man, I usually do not talk like that. I talk about not guilty, burden of proof. In 18 years, I've never been more dissatisfied and disappointed on what has brought us to court today. I have fought as hard as I can for four days for this man, and when I sit down, I can't fight anymore for him. And I can tell you one thing, he's innocent. End quote. Before I go on, I wanted to get your thoughts on this quote and everything you heard about these trials today, Brenna.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I just said, it's making zero to little sense. And, I mean, that's a powerful quote because, obviously, like a defense attorney is going to fight tooth and nail whether or not his client is guilty or innocent but it seems like he really truly believes he's innocent and also i'm having some second thoughts too because it's just not adding up and i also wanted to ask was there any forensics in this case because it seems like it's just like you said he said she said and eyewitnesses and jailhouse informants
1: yeah so they did mention things about dna being on certain spots of the store and around the victim's body and things like that, but a lot of the information was very unclear and confusing, and as I go on later, it'll be disproved anyway, Um, so I didn't want to include that in the initial portion of it because I felt like it was just more confusing than anything, but also keep in mind this was 1999, so DNA technology was not where it is at today, let alone when we reinvestigate these cases so there was but it was basically like we couldn't rule them out but we couldn't rule them in type of thing
0: oh it was kind of one of those secretor and then they later found out that that was fake science yes like okay i I feel like that's
1: similar to what was going on there both men tried several times to appeal their convictions and lost In 2009, the Innocence Project, based in New York, and the Innocence Project of Texas began cooperating with the Dallas County District Attorney Conviction Integrity Unit to reinvestigate both men's cases. They were able to find evidence that the trial files maintained by the Dallas County Assistant District Attorney Rick Jackson had a large number of documents that were never disclosed to either Mosey or Allen's defense team. It also came to light that the lead investigator, Detective Richard Berry, falsified a claim in his swarm affidavit stating three local store clerks all identified Allen. There were actually five clerks in total. One identified the man as being someone else and the other could not make a positive identification. That's a very long shot from his original statement.
0: Yeah, and I heard you say the big no-no from what I know in court is if it is found that you are not providing either side of the attorneys, that sounds like a mistrial. Like if you're not providing them with all the information, that is a huge, huge red flag and no-no.
1: Yeah, you can't use something in court and not share it with the other side. Exactly. not how that works for sure.
0: They also proved that the jailhouse
1: informants received reduced sentences after their testimony, a direct contradiction
0: to what they testified.
1: Brenna, I wanted to get a little bit more of what you thought on jailhouse informants since this case was solely built on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would think that, I know you said there was a little bit of DNA wasn't reliable, but it did seem that this whole case was based on the jailhouse informants and Did you say that they originally said they weren't getting anything in return for their testimony, right?
1: Yeah, they both testified that they had received no special treatment or any reduce in sentencing after testifying or before testifying too.
0: Wow. So I guess is that something that is legal, that they can, redu- they can give them something in return. So I'm not sure if it's like a legal matter of
1: more of like an ethical one mm. of where, okay, we'll offer you this if you give us XYZ. we Z. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. Exactly. But I feel like that's why it's really hard to rely on jailhouse informants because they're either doing it, one, because they just want to get out of prison and have nothing better yeah. to do. Like, oh, I can provide you this information whether it's true or not because – I'll they're get a already day in out of jail. Exactly. They're yeah. already in jail. They'll get a day out of prison to at least get somewhat of a quote unquote normal life, even though it's still in a courtroom. It's just yeah. out of their cells, out of the prison in general. And I think the only other reason you would do it is okay, I he told me this information, but what are you going to do for me? Because, you know, number one rule in prison is snitches get stitches. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to put myself in a really bad situation if I know that. I'm not going to get anything out of it.
0: Yeah. Also, to play on the reverse side, to play devil's advocate, it's also, I mean, the eyewitnesses, these aren't the same guys that were witnessed. But to go back to the eyewitnesses, those also aren't reliable. So it just amazes me that they were found guilty based on a jailhouse informant and the people from the street saying, oh, I think they might have been involved. Yeah. And it all went from there. For sure. And I mean, I'm not saying all eyewitnesses are bad
1: but your eyes yeah no your memory
0: is faulty and you know you could remember something and then just the one item is off that completely changes everything yeah
1: your eyes definitely play tricks on you and especially in a state of where something makes you uncomfortable or something is panic yes it's not something that you can really rely on either so I definitely agree with you on both points the Innocence Project also did DNA testing on a drop of blood that was found near the front door of Boren's store that was a mixture of his blood and an unidentified person. Both Mosey and Allen were excluded after testing. They also tested a hair fragment found under Boren's fingernails. These were not linked to either men either. If that was not enough, they went one step further and tested the blood-stained ball-peen hammer that was found near Bourne's body that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode when they were searching the scene, and what they found around was one of the hammer along with the wallet. Well, that one was covered in blood, and they tested the blood on the handle, and it did not match either Alan or Mosey. Wow. Yeah. With these new findings, both men were released in 2014. A little over four years later, the Dallas, Texas judge Raquel Jones on May 10th of 2019 announced men both, quote, actually innocent, end quote, and Allen and Mosey were fully exonerated. Both men maintained their innocence for over two decades and spent over 15 years behind bars. Both received certificates of innocence and were each awarded $1,226,066 in September of 2019. Although they will never get their lives back or the time that they lost, I am happy to see that this ending is a little bit better than most in this situation. But it does make me sad that if it would have been done correctly from the beginning, a killer could have been found and these men's lives wouldn't have been drastically impacted the way they were.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of mistakes from the detective, but also they were released not too long ago. I mean, I know we're in 2021, but this was end of 2019. That also kind of makes me sad that they only had, what, seven months in like a real world before the world shut down again. Oh I didn't my even gosh, think about yeah, that until... I, I did not think about that. Too. I was like thinking 2019. That so that's really sad, but I'm glad that they were awarded money as well because after spending 15 years behind bars, I know they were doing odd jobs and things like that, but they still could have been moving on with their life, getting assistance that they needed for drug addiction. They could have been having families, stable jobs. So I am glad to hear that they were awarded some money.
1: Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people don't know, but... Even if you're fully exonerated, it's not guaranteed that you'll get money after you are fully exonerated and released from prison either. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, so I was really happy to see that they at least were awarded something. I mean, nothing will ever repay the 15 years that they spent in jail for something that they didn't do. And I mean, I think the worst part about this to me is, yes, they are, quote, actually innocent, but so many people – still think people that are fully exonerated did that crime and there's just this stigma behind it anyway that I mean I'm sure I just type in these two men's name and all of this pops up it's like one google search away from someone finding out all of this stuff that they had zero control over
0: Oh yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, from the very beginning, they were pinned for something that they didn't do because of their background and how they kind of handled their lives. I mean, like you said, we don't know. They could have been on their way to get help for drug addiction. You don't know what caused them to go into that spiral and then obviously... They kind of just easily fit a box and it's just really unfortunate to see that.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it seems like they didn't fit society's mold. Yeah, I mean, a life
1: is a life no matter what you're doing with it. I'm a strong opinion on of, I mean, you can always fix something that's broken, but you can't just throw those people aside because you don't feel like putting in the effort. I agree. Just like this case and so many others The Innocent Project takes on, they would never get their life back without the work that they are doing. If you'd like to learn more about The Innocence Project or how to get involved, check out the link in our description box below. Again, I just want to shout out the Innocence Project of Texas for the amazing work on this case and all they are doing to right the wrongs for those who are truly innocent.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, unfortunately, those men would still be in prison if it wasn't for the Innocence Project.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, you saw it. It's It took them four years to have the full investigation done and for them to say in 2019 that they were oh, actually innocent. Oh, my bad. Innocent. Sorry. Yeah why wouldn't they have done it? Um, So I mean, to your point, yeah, not a lot of people are going to take the time and get into the nitty gritty of it. And I I mean, it's just amazing that they are taking the time to do this and help those people out that a lot of people are going to just push aside and push to the back burner for sure. And before we wrap up this episode, I did want to mention that Maggie Barnes had recently passed and it's just heartbreaking to know that she left without knowing what really happened to her husband and really getting that justice for him. I mean how she found out about it being awoken at 3 a.m and then to really find her husband in such a vulnerable state and like in something that will never be taken away out of her memory. It's just really upsetting to me because in actuality I mean He lost his life and these two men lost 15 years of their life. I feel like this whole investigation just really did nothing but tear people down and it's really unfortunate to see. I am happy that the Innocence Project built at least two of the men up, but it's just heartbreaking to know that the Borns family really never got justice for their murdered loved one.
0: Yeah, and that brings up a good point. I know you said that they never got justice, so we never find out who killed Reverend Jesse Borns.
1: Yeah, so at least from what i could find i was not able to like fully conclude a lot of the things when i would type in his name these the other two men mosey and alan would come up and kind of their story in that background so i was not able to find anything that fully stated like we found this person but i mean at it was 1999 and they were fully exonerated in 2019 that's so much time lost that it would be
0: investigating yeah
1: Very hard to catch back up. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it would just be a lot easier back in 1999. If they had done it the right way. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, that is the story of the exoneration of Stanley Mosey and Dennis Allen. We would love to hear your feedback on this episode. Leave us a comment or review. If you have a case suggestion, reach out to us through our website, logostory.net. You can also check out all of our source material for this episode while you're there. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Logos Stories. We will be back with a new episode from me in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world.
0: Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound nightmare for our theme music.